0: Michael and Allie, and Tara's going to read the passage from today, and then Jonathan's going to be here. Thank
1: you. Okay. Please stand with me as we read God's word together. Our passage today is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You may be seated.
0: Thanks for uh, joining us here this morning. Um, From our copy of Scripture this morning, our section of Scripture, um, what you see is we are uh, still in our sermon series on the resurrection. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, We started it last week where we saw Paul turn our attention to the common ground that he has with the disciples, the believers there in the city of Corinth, the Corinthian church. And what Paul is doing is he's going to eventually address an issue uh, that was circling around in the Corinthian church. He's going to get to that issue today. But last week we saw him talk about how the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the idea that dead people come back to life, is crucial for the gospel. It's essential to the gospel. It's part of the gospel elements that we cannot get rid of because they are just so intricately and intimately woven together. What we're going to see this morning is that Paul is now going to turn and address the issue head on because there is an idea within the Corinthian church. There is a belief that is circling around that is going to lead the Corinthian believers astray and Paul is going to address this idea. Um, if you've ever heard of a, a theologian, there's a man named R.C. Sproul, and he's written many books, as a, a phenomenal teacher. But one of his books that he has is a, a book with this title called Consequences Have Ideas. And what he's doing is just simply making the statement, right? When we see consequences, when we see results in this world, those results, those consequences just didn't come from. Um, Out of nowhere, they came from ideas. Ideas, things people believed, led them to act, think, speak in certain ways, and it produced certain consequences. So, whether it's people being influenced um, by world events or theology... Whether it's people being influenced by arts or education or just maybe even conversations that you have with family and friends, coworkers, neighbors, these sorts of things. whenever we bump into one another, bump into these things, what we're doing is there's just ideas that are being exchanged. And ideas, whatever level they come from, ideas will inevitably lead to consequences. And in large part, we understand this reality, right? That when we think something, and if we are convinced that something is true, it's going to order how we speak to one another. It's going to order how we act towards one another. It's going to order how we just live life and what we do and what we don't do, right? So if you believe that stealing is wrong, this belief will lead you to not embezzle money from, from, your, um, from your co coworkers, from your boss, if you believe that telling the truth is crucial, this belief will lead you to speak and act in certain ways toward your coworkers or toward your roommates. If you believe that retirement is important, this belief will lead you to save money, to live on a budget, to invest wisely. And when you think about just these examples, and those are just a thumbnail scratch of just the things that we believe, we recognize that things like this, these kinds of beliefs, they're good and they're right. And they lead to consequences that are good and right. Not stealing from your company, good. Telling the truth, good. Saving for retirement, good. But for the most part, we see the connection between true belief, things that we know to be true, know to be good, know to be right, and the positive consequences that come about from believing these true, good, right things. But have you ever found yourself holding to an idea which you thought was true, but you hadn't quite thought through the full consequences of that belief? So maybe it was something you read in a magazine, or maybe something you watched on the television, Perhaps there's just some sort of pop cultural belief that is swirling around. And as you interact with family and friends, you, you find people are just in general believing a certain thing around you. And so without really thinking through the implications of that idea, what you do is you grab onto it. You make it your own. You believe it to be true, but you really haven't thought through, if I really believe this thing is true, there could be some really unacceptable, some really unwanted, some really negative consequences that come from this belief. Now most likely the high majority of us here have found ourselves in the place where we have believed something to be true without thinking through the consequences of holding to that belief. That's just part of growing up. That's just part of of getting older, of just interacting with one another as we mature as Christians in the faith, and just as we mature in life where we learn, man, I I used to believe this, I used to think this, but then I started reading the Scriptures. I started to understand the influence of the Gospel, of what Jesus says to me from the Scriptures, and I see now how this thing I once used to believe, it wasn't that maybe it was outright heresy, but it just wasn't mature in my thinking. And I see now how the scripture like sandpaper is coming and it's molding me as I submit myself to the scriptures. And it's when we turn to our section of scripture this morning that we're going to find the Corinthians in this place where they were holding to something they thought to be true, but Paul in a very logical, concise, clear way is going to come and show them if what you say what you believe to be true is actually true, then we're going to find ourselves in a mess. We're going to find ourselves in a world of hurt. We're going to find ourselves in a place where the gospel is actually not the gospel any longer. There were some in Corinth who were holding to a belief. They were believing this statement to be true. There is no resurrection of the dead. They were grasping onto this and saying, we believe this to be true. But Paul's going to come alongside these believers and show them that what they believe to be true is actually false because if what they believe to be true about the resurrection were actually true, the negative consequences would abound and it would completely undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with verse 12, what Paul is doing is now he has entered into the main beef of his argument. From verse 12 to verse 59, Paul is going to tackle two ideas. He's first going to tackle the idea of the resurrection of the dead, that dead people do come back to life. And he's going to take several verses to walk through this reality with the Corinthian believers. And then once he gets done establishing that fact, in verse 35, he's then going to talk about the idea of what resurrected bodies look like. So he's going to talk about future resurrection and resurrected bodies. That's the two topics he's going to take up for the rest of chapter 15. But first, before he gets there, what he's going to do is he's going to approach the Corinthian believers at the level of a refutation he's going to come and lay out an argument for them very concise very logical saying if what you think is true were to actually become true there are unacceptable consequences everywhere so paul has approached them on the common ground of the gospel he has said to them do you remember what i preached to you when i came proclaiming the gospel and the answer is yes yes Of course we remember what you preached to us. You preached to us Christ crucified, and you preached to us Christ resurrected. Do you remember how you received that as truth? And they would go, yes, we receive this as truth. We are standing in it, Paul says. They received it. They are being saved by it. But the general idea is that there are some who are beginning to not hold fast to this truth, and they're beginning to drift from the reality that the resurrection is essential to the gospel. And so Paul is going to turn and he's going to concentrate on this idea of the future resurrection of the dead by showing this main idea to the Corinthian believers from these verses, that the resurrection of the dead is essential to Christian faith. The resurrection of the dead is essential to the Christian faith. Not only is it essential to the gospel, no resurrection, no gospel. He's established that last week. Now he's going to build on top of that platform and say, if we gut the resurrection of the dead, what you have is no longer the Christian faith. The resurrection of the dead is essential to the Christian faith. So what we're going to do is take these verses, 12 through 20. We're going to dice it up into three parts. Okay, if you're a note taker, these are your headings here. What you're going to see is this. The problem, the consequences, and the hope. Okay, the problem, the consequences, and the hope. So first Paul is going to tackle the problem that was existing there in Corinth. Open up your copy of Scripture. You're going to see in your Bible, verse 12, verse 13, and verse 16. You're going to see Paul lay out the problem for them. Paul writes this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, remember, that's what I was proclaiming to you, how can some of you actually say, listen, there's no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection, resurrection of the dead then not even christ has been raised jump down to verse 16 for if the dead are not raised not even christ has been raised paul's point is pretty simple To deny the resurrection of the dead destroys the foundation on which the gospel rests. It completely comes and it knocks the guts out of the Christian faith. The good news of Jesus Christ is only good news if dead people come back to life. But it was this very thing which many in Corinth were actually denying. So Paul writes, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? When Paul showed up in Corinth, his gospel preaching consisted of Christ crucified for their sins and Christ raised on the third day. This is what was proclaimed to them. This is what they received. But at some point in time, they began to drift from this truth. They began to say, listen, Paul, I know what you preached, but really Dead people coming back to life? Seriously? Mm, I think the more logical result for us as believers would be to hold to this truth. There is no resurrection from the dead. So Paul sees this thinking, this belief, something they believe to be true. There is no resurrection of the dead. Paul sees this for what it is. It's just flat out false belief. And he's going to address what they are believing to be true head on. He's not going to dance around it. In love, he's going to come and speak hard truth, not because he just wants to be a hard man, but he's coming out of love for these brothers and sisters who are existing in Corinth. So Paul, Paul starts off by saying, That if what they say is true, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then what this necessarily means is this, that not even Christ has been raised. And that would be a huge problem. Not a small problem, Herculanean problem, gigantic problem. Like the gospel's gutted of its power and Christianity is no longer Christianity kind of problem. So it's as if Paul sits down across from these Corinthian believers. They come to the table. They're eating a meal. And he just starts this conversation with them and says, listen. Uh, Okay, listen. I I know what what you're saying. I know what you suppose to be true. That there is no resurrection of the dead. But if you are saying this, then what you must see is that there are several, several, several negative and unacceptable consequences that must be true if what you're saying is true. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus did not triumph over death. If dead men do not rise, then Jesus did not rise. In short, if Christ has been raised, the Christian faith is Empty. So after Paul has laid out the problem, what he does is then he then turns and lists out five negative consequences that come as a result of believing that Christ has not raised from the grave. Jesus is still dead. If he's still some dusty bones in a tomb somewhere over in the Middle East, these are the things that would be true. And they are things that are unacceptable, things that that we cannot believe. So he begins to logically lay out for them the consequences, the consequences of their belief. And you see this in verses 14, 15, 17 through 19. Paul writes this, listen, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Why? Because we went around testifying about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised, like you are saying. Verse 17 If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep, the dead in Christ, they have actually perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. These would be the consequences if what the Corinthians were believing to be true about the resurrection were actually to become true. So what does Paul do in light of their false belief? Paul proceeds to show the negative consequences of holding to the idea that dead men don't rise. And like I said, he lifts out five unacceptable results. First, Paul says, our gospel preaching is vain and our testimony about God becomes a lie. It's verses 14 and 15. Paul was a gospel preacher. This was the calling on his life. And he gave himself over to this wholeheartedly. Paul's message wasn't an eloquent message. All you have to do is go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2 of this letter where he says, Listen, I came with fear and trembling. I didn't come with fancy, eloquent words. I came with one simple message. I decided to know one thing among you, and it was this, Christ crucified. Simple gospel message. And here he elaborates more that for Paul, Christ crucified necessarily means Christ resurrected. I'm a gospel preacher, Paul says. I came to you proclaiming this. And if I came to you proclaiming this, and if what you say is true, that Christ has not been raised, then he says our preaching would be in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. The R and the we there are Paul the apostles any gospel preacher that's ever existed from Paul until now me and you as just ordinary believers if it is true that Christ has not been raised it's this idea of not just preaching is in vain but this idea of preaching is what does preaching represent it's the gospel essence itself the gospel message would be it would be useless it'd be empty it would it would have no bearing no meaning whatsoever If we deny Christ's resurrection, Paul says, we make the gospel message void of content. It's like we go inside the gospel and what we do is completely gut it of all of its substance. And what we're doing is playing a shell game. We're just putting forward something toward people that actually has no bearing, no significance, no power to save whatsoever. And Paul goes a step further in verse 15 and says, listen, if Christ has not been raised, then we all gospel preachers who've ever existed, all believers who've ever shared the gospel with a friend that they care about, we would actually be found to be false witnesses concerning God because we actually are testifying about God that He raised Christ. And so, in essence, our message of you can be made right with God is riding on a lie. We're going around and going, God's raised Jesus from the dead. You have hope of salvation. Not really. And he says, if we hold to the fact If we believe to be fact, that Christ has not been raised, preaching is in vain, and we are found to be misrepresenting God, because what we say to be true about God is actually a lie, and that cannot be handled. Verse 14, Paul goes on and gives the second unacceptable consequence. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is vain. So not only is the essence of the gospel gutted preaching in vain, not only would we make ourselves out to be a liar, not only would God become a liar, but if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. And it's just this logical procession, right? If I came to you and said, believe my gospel, the gospel that really has no essence to it, and you believed upon that gospel, what you're doing is your faith becomes a sham because the gospel that you're resting your faith on is a sham. And so if we come and say, I'm preaching to a gospel, there's really no beef, there's really no substance, there's really no gravity, there's really no truth, Jesus is still in the grave, he's a sack of bones, there's dust collecting, I can go and point you out where he's at, and you go, I believe in this, then what are you basing the substance of this faith upon? the resurrection did not take place the gospels a sham if the gospels a sham then so was the faith that produced in the corinthians genuine faith does not merely consist of belief in a crucified christ by necessity genuine faith must rest upon a crucified and resurrected christ and paul is laying out for the corinthians that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is empty. Your faith doesn't mean anything because it's ultimately resting upon a sham. Third, Paul says this, verse 17 If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If something is futile, it's weak, it's ineffective. It's unable to accomplish its goals. It's unable to do anything. So if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then faith in this Christ is futile because a Christ who's still in the grave means that his death didn't accomplish anything. If Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, then our sin problem still remains. I love this quote by David Pryor. Can you pull that, pull that up there, um, Brett, I love this quote by David Pryor where he comes along and he sums up this idea of what it means for if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Pryor writes this in explanation All talk of Christ dying for our sins in accordance with the scriptures becomes meaningless if, in fact, Jesus stayed dead. The unanimous testimony of the scriptures is that the wages of sin is death. Death marks the end result of that separation from God which sin inevitably produces. If Jesus stayed dead, there are only two possible conclusions we can draw. One, Either Jesus was not the sinless person everyone thought him to be, and his death marked his final separation from God, or two, he might have been without personal sin, but his attempts to atone for the sin of the world by his death did not meet with divine approval. Either way, we are still in our sins, cut off from God, and facing his judgment like everyone else if it is true that Christ did not grace from the dead. In the end, Paul helps the Corinthians to see that if what you believe to be true, if there is no resurrection of the dead, that not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. If Christ died for our sins on the cross, which was part of the gospel message that Paul was preaching... But was not raised by God as evidence of God's approval of Jesus' sacrifice, then his death by itself achieved nothing and our faith is futile. He says if we have a dead Jesus, there is nothing, nothing has happened that is actually atoned for your sins. You're believing in a hoax. You've been deceived. You've been schnookered. You've You've been tricked. Fourth, Paul goes on and what he says in verse 18 is just intricately tied with what he says in verse 17. If you're believing that Christ has not been raised, not only is your faith futile and are you still in your sins, but then those who have fallen asleep, the dead in Christ, they don't actually have eternal life. They have actually eternal death. They own separation from God. They have actually perished. If it is true that Christ has not been raised, listen, the negative consequence of believing that Christ has not been raised is tied directly to what Paul has just said. The resurrection of Christ from the dead is the sign, the sign that God was pleased with the sacrifice of Christ. Listen, go and do a study of this. You are smart people. Take your Bibles, find a concordance, and look up the word resurrection. Whenever you study the resurrection in the New Testament, it is always linked to the idea of, hey, do you want to know that Jesus was the legit deal? Do you want to know that Jesus actually accomplished what he said he accomplished when he died as a sacrifice on that cross? To hopefully the answer, we go, yes, I want to know. Can I trust in Jesus Christ? Can I place my faith in Christ? Can the cross withstand the weight of my faith? And the answer from the Bible is yes. And it proves it like this. Jesus isn't dead. The sign that God was satisfied with the atoning sacrifice for my sin and your sin is this. Jesus isn't a dead man, a sack of bones, in a grave in the Middle East. There's an empty grave in the Middle East. In Jerusalem, there is no grave marker with Jesus Christ. Born, died, there's not. And that is the sign that God was pleased with the sacrifice of Christ. The same Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Do you want to know that Jesus wasn't just an ordinary average man, but that He was actually the Son of God cloaked in flesh? All you got to do is look at His resurrection. Romans chapter 4, the same Paul writes, Jesus was delivered up for our sins, and God raised Him from the dead as proof that we can now stand Justified before God, but if God has not raised Jesus from the dead, then the idea that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not a satisfactory for payment for sin is what is what must be true. It means that those who fallen asleep in Christ have perished. What Paul means here by perished isn't died; they've already died. They have fallen asleep. Paul says that is his his Christian um verbiage of what it means to be a believer and to actually die they have actually already perished in the sense of they are no longer living but what paul goes on to say is this that if the dead in christ those who have fallen asleep in christ if jesus has not been raised from the dead they will perish And what Paul means here by perish in that last word in verse 18 is this. They would still be guilty of sin and they would still stand condemned before God on that day of judgment. If Christ has not been raised, it means the dead in Christ went to the grave, resting upon Jesus' death and resurrection to only discover that he really didn't raise to life. And instead of waking from their sleep, to the smile of God's welcome, they would actually awake to the eternal punishment of God's wrath. In the end, Paul turns to verse 19 and he says, If Christ has not been raised, we are to be pitied because ultimately we are without hope. No resurrection equals no hope. Listen, if life here on earth is all there is, if life here on earth is all, that, is all there is, the hurts, the pains, the frustrations, the suffering, the affliction, the unmet needs, the money problems, the relation problems, the marital problems, things not going your way, the hurts, the goods. But if you put the sum of life experience and set it down on the table... And if the Christian message was, listen, take hope, all you experience in life, that's all there is, I would cash out on this thing in a heartbeat. The Christian message is this, that there is hope beyond this life. But if life here on earth is all there is, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're fools. We're ignorant. We're idiotic. We're deluded. We are devoting ourselves over to a sham, to a myth, to something that ought not to be given. Why would you give your life over to something if in this life only is the only source of hope that you have? To gut the gospel of the resurrection is to gut the gospel of hope. Christians in this situation are pitiable, Paul says, because ultimately they're deluded. The essence of being a Christian is to set your hope on Christ as Lord over sin and death, to set your hope on Christ as Lord of life and eternity. Jesus is the one who conquers the grave. Jesus is the one who conquers sin. He is the one who conquers death. He is the Lord. He is the king. His kingdom is ruling and reigning over all things. But if this king whom we worship is so impotent that he cannot be resurrected from the grave, if he cannot come bursting forth from the ground then the claims of Jesus having victory over Satan, sin, death, Jesus being the one who has the ability to usher in eternal life, to move spiritually dead people to become spiritually alive people, if he's still in the ground, if Christ has not been raised, the reality is that Jesus isn't Lord of anything. He's just simply not Lord of anything. And in this circumstance, Paul says believers would be stripped of all hope because what you would ultimately have is just hope in this life only. That some good stuff will happen to you. Hopefully in the end more good will happen than the bad. Hope it goes well with you. So what Paul does is he comes and he shows them. Listen, I know what you believe to be true. There is no resurrection of the dead, but what you have to see is this, that there is a whole slew of negative consequences that would come about, negative, unacceptable consequences that would come about if what you are believing were to be true. And it sort of ends on a bummer note, right? Verse 19, you're believing this. Stop believing this because it's wrong. And he says, if what you believe to be true were true, then the gospel message would be stripped of its power. Your faith is a waste of time, a grandiose waste of time. We would be liars. God would be liars. You'd still be in the sins. When you die, you're ultimately going to perish, standing before God. Ultimately, you're just a pitiable fool. But what Paul does is, as he rolls out of verse 19 and rolls into verse 20, what he does is he gives a handful of simple words that simply go backwards and that realigns everything that he's just said. We have the problem, we have the consequence, but when you read verse 20, that is where the hope comes forth. So when Paul gets done saying, listen, if in Christ Christ, We have hope in this life only. We are of all people, most be to pity. But in fact, praise be to God that Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. Your wrong thinking needs to be reoriented. Your wrong thinking needs to submit to the authority of this absolute truth. Jesus Christ is no longer in the grave. Yes, he died for sins. Yes, he was buried. That's how dead he was. They shoved him in the grave. They stuck him in there. He was in there for three days. But on the third day, he came bursting out of the grave. He was resurrected to life. He appeared to many. We now have hope. The absolute truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead turns all the negative consequences of no resurrection into the positive blessings believers have in Christ. Listen, because Christ has been raised from the dead, we do have hope beyond this life. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, the dead in Christ will not perish. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, your sins have been forgiven. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, your faith is not worthless. The gospel message is not empty. And the testimony concerning God that he raised Christ stands as the beacon of hope for those who are hopeless and far from God. This is the good news of the resurrected Christ. And Paul's just driving this home. He's just laying it out for them. Listen, don't think wrongly on this matter. If you think wrongly on this matter, it unbuckles and it undoes and it knocks the legs out of the whole foundation of the Christian faith and the gospel itself. In the end, we are meant to see this. The resurrection of the dead is essential to the Christian faith. So the question that we have got to ask ourselves is how do we respond to to a text like this? What can we see As we we work through these verses, 12 through 20, and apply them to ourselves. What we must recognize is that there's just implications abound from these verses. Implications abound from these verses. But there's at least two that I think that we need to hear this morning. One of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is this. The example that's laid out before us is of believers, genuine believers who were believing something to be true that was actually false. And Paul comes alongside them and goes, friend, you're believing something false. You haven't quite thought through it, because if you thought through it and saw all the negative consequences and all the negative results that would come from this belief, you would see that what you're believing to be true is actually false. So what we need to go back is correct the false premise that you have. And so when we have that example laid out before us, one of the questions we can ask ourselves is this. Am I open to receiving correction when someone speaks into my life concerning wrong belief and the negative consequences that could come about? Am I open to people coming to me? Am I inviting people? people into my world, am I surrounding myself with those who love me enough to go, I see what you're believing, I see what you're thinking, but it's not in line with what the scriptures teach us and what the scriptures have to say. See, the gospel has implications upon who we are. When we are redeemed by Jesus Christ, we're made into a new creation. The gospel comes to us and makes us into disciples. The gospel fuels us to grow as disciples. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus this morning, trusting and resting in him alone for our only hope of salvation, the Bible comes to us and tells us you have a new identity. You are now a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. And in these verses, Paul is making the connection for the Corinthian believers between what the gospel is and how the gospel is to shape them and what they think and how they act. There was a disconnect there. They were genuinely born again. When you go back and read 1 Corinthians 6, it's there. When you read the beginnings of 1 Corinthians 15, it's there. They are genuine born-again believers. But there's some sort of gospel disconnect where they're saying, yes, I believe these things to be true, but then I'm also holding to this thing sort of oddly enough, and I'm not really even thinking through all the negative consequences that could come about. So Paul comes along and goes, no, we just need to help you grow in what it looks like to mature in your thinking, to align with the truth and the realities of the scriptures. Paul knows that he preached the whole gospel. He knows that they received the whole gospel, but Paul saw in their life gospel disconnect. And what he does out of love for them is he steps into their life in order to speak the truth and love, pointing them back to the good news of a resurrected Christ, So the question becomes this, who do you have speaking into your life to help you grow in your thinking and mature in your faith as a believer? Who's doing that for you right now? Who is your Paul in this instance? If we are in the place of the Corinthians, who is the Paul in your world who has open access to what you think, what you say, what you do? Who has open access to know John struggles with this? John needs my help with this. Who's walking with you? Who have you given permission to in this way to say, I need you to help me mature in my thinking and grow in my faith in Christ. I need you to be my Paul in this instant so that if you see something in me that is not lining up with scripture, I need you to come and point that out in my life. This is just the essence of discipleship. Paul is being a good disciple of Jesus Christ here in this moment. What he's not doing is going, man, they're believing some really funky doctrine. Some really weird belief going on. Jesus, not raised from the dead, it'll work out in the end. No, he loves them too much to go, I hope they get this one sorted. No, he steps into their life. He knows them well enough to know you're thinking this way. It's going to lead to these consequences. I don't think you fully thought through the consequences, so let me help you go back and correct your thinking. Who do you have speaking into your life to help you grow in your thinking and mature in your faith as the believer? More simply put, who is discipling you and who are you discipling? Who is discipling you and who are you discipling? At our church here, discipleship, it's the air we breathe. It's the DNA that's woven into us. We have high-level discipleship. We have low-level discipleship. We do quarterly studies. We do the one-on-one. We push and we push and we talk and we model and we encourage. Find those people. Do these things. Get up early. Grab a lunch. Go late night. Go to the movies. Talk. Have a coffee. Open the Bible. Be open and honest with one another. We want mature disciples here in this church. But see, one of the lies Satan feeds us is that we can actually grow in our thinking and mature in our faith apart from others in our life. It's the lie of the Lone Ranger Christian. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Hi-ho, silver, we put on the little band where you start running through the Christian life by ourselves thinking that we can just pull it off by ourselves. Satan comes along and goes, man, community, that's messy, bro discipleship, actually having to get up early and go have a cup of coffee with that person, that's not cool, man. Get a couple out extra minutes of sleep. Man, you can honestly grow in your biblical thinking. You can honestly mature in your faith apart from others in their lives. After all, they've got their own problems. You don't want their baggage heaped on top of your baggage, do you? And what Satan does is he comes and he does what he does does so well and so often to many of us is he whispers that lie listen you can do Christianity apart from community and I think there's a theological term buried in here First Corinthians somewhere and I think it's this baloney it's baloney If if, if I were somewhere else, there might be some stronger terms used, but baloney would be suffice for now. Listen, when you open up your Bible, the ebb and flow of the New Testament is the ebb and flow of community. It's community. That's why we do community groups, that's why we do discipleship, that's why we do equipping forums, that's why we do one on one, that's why we do the high, high level. It's not because there's just nothing else to do. It's not like the elders got some. We're over in the corner huddling around, looking around and go, man, what can we do to waste a lot of people's time? Oh, yes, let's come up. Community groups. Evil laugh, you know. That will really ruin people. Waste their time. That's not what we do. We don't do Community. We don't do discipleship because we've got nothing else better to do. We model community and we model discipleship in front of you because it's the biblical pattern of growth. Do you want to mature in your faith? Do you want to become that rock-solid believer that knows the Bible, knows the Word, that's confessing sin, walking in the light, having fellowship with one another as we have fellowship with the Father? Hopefully your answer is yes. Answer, it's not novel, it's not new. Discipleship, community. Get into someone else's life and start knowing what's going on. Brothers and sisters, speaking into the lives of one another, helping one another to think correctly and to correct wrong thinking is just the ebb and flow of New Testament discipleship. But listen, some of you are here trying to pull off your Christian walk as an island unto yourself, and you're listening to me. You're hearing what I'm saying about discipleship as a direct implication of the gospel, yet you fully rec- and you fully recognize that this is not true of you, that you are not being discipled, you are not discipling others, and yet somehow, right now, in this very moment, you are justifying everything in your favor. Yeah, but you don't know my situation. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, but, yeah, but. And it's just the cycle of justification. Right now, you're doing this. Nobody knows you. Nobody is walking with you. And you're deceived right now into thinking, man, I'm just great. This Christian life is awesome. I'm getting to do it by myself. But you are deceived right now, I'm telling you. And as a result of this false belief that you can do Christianity apart from community right now, and you can't even see this, but right now your life is riddled with negative consequences. There's area of your life where you think you are spiritually mature, but you're actually marked by spiritual immaturity. You think you are spiritually healthy, but you're actually spiritually unhealthy. You think you have a biblical grasp on all these things, but they're actually your life just marked by biblical confusion because you're just an island under yourself. Nobody knows you. Nobody's there. No one's speaking. No one's walking. No one's talking. And what you're doing is actually modeling an unbiblical view of what it means to be a believer listen the beauty of scripture is that it has something to say to those of us who find ourselves in this place the bible calls us to walk in the light as God is in the light to confess our sins with one another and the beauty of the gospel is that for those who have been redeemed by the crucified and resurrected Christ we can now be open with one another in these ways knowing that when we speak into one another's life I'm not doing so to cut you down I'm doing so out of love for you For one of the first times in my life as a Christian believer, experiencing the reality of healthy discipleship, where people can speak into my life and I can speak in their life without us bristling up like a porcupine, is when I came here and stepped into the realm of the four other elders that I do life with. Listen, if you think that our elder meetings are just high fives and puppy dogs, roses and sunshine because everything is great and we're all like-minded and there's never a problem in the world, man, you're just mistaken. There's times when we've had healthy conversation where someone is thinking and saying something. It's like, listen, bro, you're operating out of fear right now and it's stopping you from being obedient to Jesus. And in those moments, that person's like, man, who are you to tell me that? How dare you speak into my life in that way? It doesn't happen. They don't have to bristle up at that hard truth spoken that correcting truth spoken why because i'm not doing it to cut you down man i'm doing it because i want jesus to shine in you in an immaculate way and that's why i'm speaking this truth in love this is exactly what paul was doing with the corinthians speaking the truth in love he becomes our example As he sought to point the Corinthians back to the common foundation of the gospel. And so I just recircle back around. The question I put before you is this Who is your Paul right now in your life? Who's discipling you? Who are you discipling? Some of you are going, I've got this. I'm discipling this person. This person is discipling me. Good. Continue to model that inside this church. Some of you are going, not there. Not sure what I should do. Go to your community group leader. Go to Pastor John Kleinschmidt. He's the pastor over community groups. Go to Tom Cheshire. Cheshire is heading up. One of his areas of ministry is the discipleship. You can go to Brady. You can go to Mallory. Listen, there is no excuse right now to go, man, I don't know what to do. Some of you might need to go ask somebody. Some of you might just need to go say, can you show me someone who might be able to disciple me? It's just a simple task of asking. Lastly, we've got to recognize this that what we believe about the resurrection has direct gospel implications. Listen, the Christian faith rides or dies on the resurrection. Hopefully that's just been driven home to you by now. The Christian faith rides or dies on the resurrection. A person, listen, this is important, a person cannot be saved without believing that God has raised Jesus from the dead. You cannot be saved if you believe God did not raised Jesus from the dead. I don't believe that Jesus has been resurrected, that God raised him from the dead. I don't believe that. The Bible says then you're not a believer. The same Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians 15 also wrote this in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We love the front half of that verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you're going to be saved. But Paul says it's a two-sided coin. It's crucifixion resurrection. Yes, I believe that Jesus is Lord over sin, Lord over death, that he was crucified on the cross. And I simultaneously believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Paul says that is where salvation is found. The implication of this verse is that if you do not believe God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you do not have what the Bible would call biblical salvation. See, listen, there's some of you here this morning. You've come here as a seeker. You're here as a doubter. Maybe you're here as a questioner. Maybe... Maybe you're just somewhere on this spectrum in between where you're just like legitimately trying to figure out this Christian thing. And you're le- legitimately right now wrestling with the gospel truths of Christ crucified for your sins and Christ resurrected for your justification. If that is you right now in this place as a non-believer, like we want you here. We want you in our midst. We want you to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want you to be with us to hear these truths proclaimed week in and week out. You have a response this morning, and your response this morning is to see that in Christ you can have hope. You go read Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, Those who are outside of Christ are godless, and because they're godless, they're hopeless. They have no hope in this world because they are outside of Christ. But your response this morning is to see that you can be found in Christ. You can have hope beyond this life because Christ has been raised from the dead. You can have salvation for your sins. You can be redeemed and made right with God the Father. All that needs to be done has been accomplished apart from you. That's the whole deal with Jesus on the cross. Jesus was the sinless son of God. Paul writes to in another letter that he's the mediator between God and man as the God-man Jesus Christ. He can mediate God to man, making God right with man. He can mediate on the behalf of man to God because he is man. He can stand in the gap as the person he is. And because of the work that he's done on the cross, he has accomplished everything that needs to be done in order for you to be made right with God the Father. So your response this morning is to come. To come, to confess. I need that to be true in my life. Your response this morning is to receive the good news being preached to you just like the Corinthians received this. That was the message Paul came to them. Listen, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. You can be made right with God the Father. You're far from Him, but you can be brought near. And the preaching of the gospel had its impact on the heart of the Corinthians. And what did they do? They received it unto eternal life. That can be true of you this morning. But for most of us here this morning, we come as believers. Believers. So what is your response to a text like this most, this morning? It could be a couple of things. One response is to recognize that in Christ you have a hope that is beyond this life because Christ has been raised from the dead. You right now have a solid foundation of future hope because you are trusting and resting in the crucified and resurrected Christ. So what is your response in light of that? I mean it's if we were a little bit more charismatic, it would be, we'd, be, we'd be cutting some circles around here. Like, that's the good news, right? That's the good news. Rejoice, worship, respond here in a couple of moments. That when the band comes and, and plays, we can sing songs and worship in this way. Christ has been raised from the dead. Glory in God and worship him. Another response might be this. Maybe you find yourself holding to a sub-biblical idea. You thought it was true, but as you're reading the Bible, you go, man, like, I see what I'm believing, but I see how the Bible corrects this way of thinking. I hadn't quite fully thought through the consequences of what I'm believing, but now I see the Scripture is shaping and correcting me. So what you do is you confess it and you be honest with God. God, I was believing this, but the Scripture is now doing its work in my heart and growing me and maturing me. Response, glorify God. The Word is doing its work in your life. Perhaps this morning you recognize that you have no one speaking into your life. You have no Paul. You're not discipling and being discipled. What's your response this morning? Reach out. Talk to another pastor. Talk to some of our ministry leaders. Maybe you've got that friend and community group. Go to them. If that person can't do it, we can find somebody who can do it. Not everybody has all the time. Maybe one person's already discipling five other people, but you want that one person. We can, we can figure out something to help you grow and mature in this way. Lastly, for some of you here, your response might be this. You're calling yourself a Christian, but the fact of the matter is you do not believe in the resurrection. And for you, your response is the same as the unbeliever, because the Bible would actually say you are an unbeliever. It doesn't matter what you call yourself if what you're believing is opposite of the gospel. So maybe you call yourself a Christian, but you know in your heart that you do not believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. The same call to you is the same call for those who are questioners, doubters, skeptics, trying to figure out the Christian thing, because right now you're actually in a bit more of a dangerous place. You're actually believing yourself to be right with God the Father when the reality is you are not right with God the Father because you're not holding to the essentials of the gospel, the gospel which truly and soundly saves. So wherever you find yourself this morning, the call for you is to don't delay in obedience to Jesus. Let's pray.